In Acts chapter 18, we pick up in verse 18. As you're turning there real quick, let me put this away here. We read, And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Cantria, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will, and he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Yeah, does anybody see what's going on here and how very profound this is? There's something that, there's all these incredible events going on in these verses. And one of them I find is Apollos. And we're going to go back a little bit and look at some of the geography and look at some other things. But I want you to kind of feast upon this and think really what's going on here. I love where it says here what we just read, that Priscilla and Aquila basically took um, Apollos under their wing, and under their wing they were basically showing Apollos something very profound. Well, I believe what's happening here, I think this really pronounces and it accentuates what Paul's mission is here. Because there was a lot of confusion going on in Scripture as to the transfer of what it meant in the Old Testament going into the New Testament where the gospel of Jesus Christ was pronounced and revealed in the New Testament by the prophecies, by the prophets. I mean, in the Old Testament, you see an awful lot of miracles. You see the absolute uh, vocal, audible word of God itself thundering through the mountains to Moses, thundering to the prophets. And can you imagine being one of the prophets? Anybody remember, we talked many, many times, what was, what is, what was the office and the responsibility of a prophet? Anybody? What does a prophet do? Yes, sir. Uh, praise the Lord. He's a teacher. That's right. And so with, with the prophet, his, he was to teach, but there were two ways that he taught also. What were the two ways that he taught? What, what did the prophet teach? Anybody remember? Let me see. 
The testimonies, that's right. And with the testimonies, oracles of weal. And the other one, that's right, oracles of woe. So I passed roles so many times and said about teaching. They were here to give basically most of the time bad news. <laughs> that's what prophets did. They were there to be a sounding board to give a warning. And with that warning came an oracle of weal or an oracle of blessing that there was hope. It wasn't just total mass destruction and there was no hope whatsoever. But all of this was leading up to the New Testament and we see Christ himself asking on the road to Emmaus to two men, haven't you read the Old Testament? He asked Nicodemus in chapter John 3, verses 10 and 11, you're a ruler of the Jews. Why don't you know the Old Testament? And what is Paul's doing here? He's working with Priscilla and Aquila. We see Crispus, we see Justice, we saw Sosthenes. And I know we had a little discrepancy in the class last week about Sosthenes, and I've done a little more studying. I stand on what I've learned, and I believe Sosthenes is the same man in 1 Corinthians 1 as, as, as the one we read, because they're bound together by Corinth. And that's why I believe they are the same. And with that, Matthew Henry believes that Sosthenes ministered to Paul. I stand on that. I believe that's the truth. And I believe that's really what happened. There's no proof of that. But you can have your opinion, and I don't think it's going to kill our fellowship or our, or our salvation at all. <laughs> but I believe Sosthenes was the same man. So anyway, one, but my point is, Christ had told Paul back earlier on in chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, he had said, you will find other people. Speak the gospel. Do not hold back and keep going. And then out of nowhere, look, we see Priscilla and Aquila. And now look what they're doing. They're taking the gospel. They're taking Apollos under their wing. He is on fire for the truth. And they're teaching him how to take the Old Testament and apply it to what just happened at Calvary. And to show in the prophecies of the Old Testament, like our brother here just said about it being a teaching, that's a perfect way of putting it, because it's teaching. Why? Because a lot of people don't know it. A very sad thing, very sad thing happened at Presbytery on Friday. One of the saddest things a person can hear. They had VBS up at Collingswood. Collingswood, the church there, is really dwindled. They have, uh, they have a lot less people, but they're still fighting hard. They had VBS... And these little children came in, a little handful. I mean, he said it wasn't as many as they usually have, but they came in, and an Elder McCoy, precious brother, he says not one of them knew who Jesus was. They didn't even know who Jesus was. They had no idea. He said, have you ever seen Christmas? What's Christmas about? I don't know. What's Easter about? I don't know. And he said, I just took them. Him and another... Uh, he and some others at the church took the kids and just started from scratch. And he's got this little book that he's ordered for the church there to teach his kids who God is, who Jesus is. The parents aren't teaching the kids who Jesus is. All they know who all the rock stars are and all the Hollywood stars and all the stuff TikTok or Click Clock or whatever's out there, I don't know, Twitter or Twitter or whatever, they know all that. <laughs> Where's Jesus? Where does Jesus? Well, he, of course, right now is one of the 21 people, of course, on the Internet that never existed. He existed. So anyway, my point is, what we see here is a wonderful, beautiful extension of the gospel of Jesus Christ where Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos under their wing. Paul's training them. They're training Apollos. And the gospel is going out. So I just wanted to give you that little opening there. Verse 18, 
Paul goes to Kentria. We talked about that a little bit last week. Anybody remember where that was? Very important. Kentria was right there, somewhere very, very important, very profound. Right there on the Isthmus of Corinth. It was a seaport there. We talked about seaports and how, how important they are. Kentria was, was in Corinth. It was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, modern-day Greece. And it was a city on the Isthmus of Corinth. Kentria was a large city that controlled two harbors. Kentria or Kentria on the eastern side of the Isthmus and Lashomion on the western side. Kentria was important for its harbor. It allowed goods to move backwards and forwards through Asia Minor and Italy and Achaia and Macedonia. And today it's still, it's still very much intact, but it's actually moved because of all the weathering. It's like six miles away from its original location, but it's still there. And like I, what I love about these geographical locations is they confirm the authenticity and the truth of Scripture. Geographically speaking, wherever the Bible says something is, you can bet that it's there. <laughs> you know that it's there, and you can, you can confirm that. So we see here that Paul is he, he's getting ready to go on his third missionary journey, and we see other mentions of Kentria are in Scripture that back this up. We see it in Acts chapter here, 18, 18 and 19. And then we see in other areas, Numbers chapter, actually if you go back to Numbers 6 and 18 and 19 to 20, we will see where Paul from Kentria, he makes this vow and it backs up the vow that he makes. But we see here in verse 18, Paul, Paul here, he had remained many days here. We see that Paul's constancy shows us that he was not at all driven away with fear. And I want to look at that a minute. I think that's extremely important. Why was it? We talked about a whole other part of why was it that prophets moved. Elijah was always moving. He went from town to town. And we see how Paul and his missionary journeys went to all these different towns. And I think there's two primary reasons. Pastor Olson had a very good reason. He said for missionaries... And for many pastors, it's good to spread the gospel and to go wherever you're called and to do it. But I believe that another reason is, is just, just like what our Lord Jesus Christ did many times when things happened, He would flee, not, not of a cowardice, but He would flee to keep the peace for other people and protect them. And I think that's, any, that's very important. Does anybody remember some examples of that in, in Christ's ministry? Lisa. Amen. That's a very foundational verse on that. That's perfect. Christ was always moving. He never rested much. Remember when he went into his hometown and he started speaking about Naaman and he talked about the woman of Zarephtha. They were Gentiles and the people were furious so they wanted to cast them over the cliff. What did he do? He, he walked right through them. He didn't stand there and call 72,000 angels and destroy them like he could have done. He could have done that at any given time. He said, my hour has not yet come, and he walked. I mean, you've seen the movies. You've seen movies with the superheroes, and they, and they do all these crazy things. But do you ever see somebody just walk through a crowd of people that was trying to detain them? I mean, something that real happened, not some stupid thing on television. Something real with Jesus literally walks right through the people, and they couldn't touch him. What did he do? Did he immaterialize? I mean, I have heard theologians, I've read many books, I've read all these things about how Christ had absolutely no divinity in his humanity. When he was here, he was nothing but a mere man. 
He had no power whatsoever. There are things he didn't know. There were things that he couldn't do. Well, if he could walk through people, I mean, when someone's trying to grab you to kill you and it's a mob, you're going to lose, okay? I don't care how big and bad you think you are, you're going to lose. He walked right through them. And he did that to, not to flee out of cowardice. His hour had not come yet. And this happened many times. Many times where they, they try to kill him and stone him, and he would get right through them. You know, there's some other examples, I think, that are very pivotal. Paul remained there many days, but I think one of the reasons why Paul left Corinth and he kept going moving, it was starting to heat up. I think that we can see in his ministry, you could say, if he's looking for trouble, he came to the right place, because everywhere he went, he found it. And when he goes in later on, we're going to see how he's brought in and Rome and he's put in jail and all these other things happen. I don't give all that away, but all these things are coming up. But we see Paul was in the middle of training those in Corinth. We see the different places that Paul was during persecutions and he was raised up and people were raised up against him. He would flee elsewhere. He would shake the dust off of his cloak. Was he afraid? We, we you know, we really... We don't know if as a human being he was afraid. I don't believe Christ was, but I do believe Paul was. He was a mere man. He was a human being. And I believe that when he prayed, let's go back and read the verses back in chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. Who has that? Can somebody read that? Go back to chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. And I'm going to be going back to this many times, and I hope we do it enough that you all memorize it. Thank you, Dave. Christ said, no one will touch a hair on your head. You're not going to be hurt. And you know, I believe that's true to a whole nother degree for all of Christians. That even if you are detained, even if you are martyred, even if you are hurt for the cause of Christ, He is going to avenge you. If it's not here, then it's going to be in heaven. But it's going to happen. But you know that why it's important to memorize these verses because every single one of us has harboring trials right now that we don't want anybody to know. Maybe. I know we, had, we heard a lot of them Wednesday night. We had four pages of prayer requests on, on Wednesday evening. And it was a wonderful Wednesday night prayer meeting we had. And we all have them. And Paul had them. I do believe he was afraid. I believe that the reason why Christ spoke to him in the vision is to tell him, I know you're afraid, but be not afraid. No matter what you're going through, I am there and I will be with you. I don't hear, there's all these gods out there people talk about, Confucius and Buddha and Allah and Muhammad. Where are they when the trials come? The only one that can comfort you through the trials is Jesus Christ. And we see that here. I do believe Paul was afraid, but I believe that he was a superhero, spiritually speaking. That no matter how bad it got, he just pushed forward. Right now, already, he's been stoned. Have you ever met anybody that's been stoned and lived through it? Have you ever read of anybody in history that's been stoned and lived through it? Well, he did. He's got, when it all comes down to when the time he's finally... He's finally murdered from Nero at 67 years old. They said he had 100. If you counted the lashes on his back, he had over 175 lashes that tore his back to shreds. He had been beaten unmercifully. And at this point, his health was declining 
miserably. And so I would say at this point, perhaps, he was starting to show some fear, but the Lord encouraged him. But you know what Paul did? And I think it's one of the greatest things we can do as Christians. When we want to just become hermits and go into our closet and go inside ourselves, the best remedy for when you're you're depressed, you're having trials and you're hurting, is to help somebody else. That is the best thing you can do. You do that and you transfer that to help somebody else, you are emulating Christ because that's what he did. And I think that's what Paul did. Look at the people that come down in chapter 20. He heals people. He heals a man from the dead He by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he takes that pain. You know one thing he carried his whole life? We were Pastor Evans incorporated that into his message at Presbytery. Romans chapter 7, the last two verses. Paul cries out, O wretched man that I am. He always carried the guilt of persecuting the Christian church. And he said, I am the least of the apostles. I think that's another big factor to his fear. I believe he carried that. And here he was begging Christ to help him. And so at this point, he goes forward, getting ready to go to his third missionary journey. And in the middle of everything that happens, look what happens here. He doesn't flee as a coward. I think... A good way of paralleling what he's doing here is when like King David became a madman. Remember he was fleeing. And we're going to answer the question why he was fleeing here in a second. Can somebody look up 1 Samuel chapter 21 and read verses 10 through 13? As soon as you get it, start reading. Okay? I think this really, this accentuates and this really pronounces really what the agenda here was. 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 13. Verse 13, please. Thank you. If you only go to this part of the story, this is why it's so important to be in Scripture. You would think that David was this little weak coward that was running from Saul because he was afraid. I mean, anybody that wouldn't be afraid would be a fool but I think he had a righteous fear. But if you continue if you continue into the study of what happened here, the crescendo comes when there is a man who comes to David and says that he actually is the one that finished off Saul. Do you remember that? What did David do and what did he tell him? Yes. But what did he say before he killed him? That's important. That's the biggest part of the story. That's it. That's the word. That's what makes the red light, the bells go off, and you won the prize. You have no right to kill the anointed of God. No right. And David, I firmly believe from studying, you have to read, you have to see maybe what's not there, He was not afraid of Saul. He was afraid that he was going to kill Saul. He was more powerful than Saul. 
far more brilliant than Saul. And he had the resources, the wherewithal, and I think he did this to keep himself from killing God's anointed. I do. I believe he fled with bravery to do that. And although he acted a little crazy here and he fled where he shouldn't have been, there are things he shouldn't have done. You know, what are you going to do when you're afraid? You don't know that. You don't know. But what he did was with, I believe, a valiance that absolutely pronounces that he was not a coward. And Paul was not, Christ was not, and Paul goes forward and he finally exits Corinth and he goes to Kentria. And this is what happens. I think this is fascinating. I'm not, you sit there and you start reading this. You can't stop reading it because it's incredible. And sometimes I start reading it and I find myself, I don't even pay attention. I, I start in chapter 18 and I'm, in no time I'm in chapter 24 because all of this connects. And it's, just, it's, it's like reading an incredible novel. We see here that it was of no cowardly insinuations at all what our Lord himself did when he was being thrown over the side of a cliff. That was not cowardly. What David did was not cowardly. Jesus did not flee as a coward. But we see here has Paul, if we read diligently into the time frame, that Paul would stay in and he would be in this situation and there would be much upheaval, I think it was time for Paul to go. And then the Lord had directed him. He took it upon himself when he saw that there was far less upheaval against him. And when there was even some Roman protection, then Paul felt it safer in his heart to go into the next battleground. This is a war that Paul is fighting. And we could see in the words, the wars fought on the soil of our country, how the battles did not just remain confined to one designated area. Think about that. Look at the campaigns of Washington, at Dorchester Heights, Delaware Valley, Yorktown, and then all throughout the East Coast, we see that. And then we see in the war between the states, that's the proper name for that war, the war between the states. Richmond to D.C., Antietam, Charlottesville, and many strategic battlegrounds even here in Maryland. This is what Paul was doing. He was fighting the fight and he was going to battle in all these different areas. And I think when we look at our own country, how many battlegrounds there were, I think it makes it very interesting on what Paul was doing. Now, all of a sudden, something happens here that we just read. Paul, he leaves Corinth, and the first thing he does is he goes and he makes this vow. He's shorn his head. Now, we, we got into that a little bit last week, but I want to look at that a little closer. Paul having shorn his head, and now some commentators believe that there is a confusion as to whether the Bible verse here we read was either Paul or Aquila. But I have absolutely no doubt that it was Paul. I tend to fully believe that if you look at the pronoun he, quote-unquote, the path follows a description of Paul. We read that when Paul tarried there many days, it said he had taken leave with his brother and he sailed into Syria. Then we get a pause with a little addendum about Priscilla and Aquila, and then it comes back to he, having shorn his head, shaving his head. And remember back earlier in the books of Acts, we read about the circumcision of Timothy. And that was kind of unusual. Because all of it, there was already in Acts 15, there was a real discrepancy about putting burdens on the new converted Jews as to exactly what was going on with circumcision. The Pharisees had come in, and if you remember in Acts 15, they had come in and they had start, started coming after the Jewish, the, the, uh, the apostles and the council, and they all met, and I believe this is why Paul's getting ready to go back to Jerusalem. They met to have a meeting and to discuss 
why it is that the Jews, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all that, the councils coming after these people that are being converted to Christianity are saying, you cannot be clean, you cannot become anything until you get circumcised. And they had a real big discrepancy there. Then all of a sudden you go after that. Paul, he trains Timothy, and the first thing he does is he gets, he gets them circumcised. What was that about? Well, what that was about is basically Timothy was getting ready to go into the synagogues. He was going to preach to the Jews, and that was a matter of reverence. It wasn't a work. It wasn't some kind of work to say that's a joint venture as the basis of my salvation with what Christ did on the cross. What he was saying was, this is out of reverence, and it's not a sin. If, I decide to be circ- if Timothy decided to be circumcised, well, that is showing reverence, and he will gain the hearts, and he will have people hearing him. That's what Paul was doing here. Same thing. What obligation did Paul have to shave his head and to go into the next town and to keep this vow? Well, what kind of vow was this? I think it's very important to look at. We see one thing I want to say. This does not mean that this is a move of works as the basis for salvation, but it was a matter of reverence. It was not a sin, not ungodly. And we see now that Paul has shorn his head in order to further his journey and to be able to show reverence to the next group he would encounter in his missionary journey. What would it mean that he had shorn his head? The word shorn is a derivative of the word shear, which is a verb that means to cut the wool off like a sheep or another animal, to cut off with scissors or shears. It means to chop off or to lop off or have something cut off. So this is being described as Paul having shorn his head or sheared his hair off to confirm a vow. I like what Matthew Henry says about this. I think he brings it together wonderfully. Matthew Henry thinks it's not at all unreasonable to believe that it actually was Paul making this vow, so he backs it up, just like he backs up the whole Sosthenes thing. You know? <laughs> and I spoke to some of the men at Presbytery, and they too, they too very heavily use Matthew Henry's old commentaries for a lot of their, a lot of the, um, just to back up their learning. I don't think we should look at any one commentary and lift any man up. But what we can see renditions, basically, or or basically teachings from Matthew Henry, who many, many times goes back to Calvin's commentaries and Luther, and he speaks of them. You know, in a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. And I think that it's good to get help. Matthew Henry thinks that it's not unreasonable to believe that it was Paul. Paul picked this specific vow, but we, we see here that Matthew Henry alludes to it by saying that he might win upon them because of the vow of the Nazarites, those ceremonial and as such ready to vanish away, had a great deal of moral and very pious significance, and therefore was fit to die the last of all the Jewish ceremonies. This was one of the last ones. And Paul, this is one of the last ones that was in effect with the Christian church, and Paul honored it. If you go back to Numbers chapter 6, verse 9, we can see a little bit of a window on what this means. Who could, who could find Numbers 6, 9 and read that? Numbers chapter 6, verse 9. Excellent. Thank you, Faith. This goes back to a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow, I mean, we could go into the vows and the covenants and we could be here for three years, but uh, I'll just make it very simple. The Nazarite vow, if there was a matter of uncleanness 
And if anybody has anything to add to this, please, you can help me out here. But the Nazarite vow was basically this. If you were declared unclean, if you had done something horrible, what you do is you'd shave your head and you would not come back until you had gone through a process and you'd go away for a while and then you come back and then they re- reinstate you or they, or they reclaim you. That's what a Nazarite vow was. This was, of, this was one of the remaining ceremonies that was very significant that would be re- recognized in this very next phase of Paul's missionary journey, with Paul would go, he would go with Priscilla and Aquila. He would also have traveled next to Ephesus. And I think it's very important to look at this vow because we might need to once again make the differentiation between whether it was a works-oriented manipulation or a reverential respect to honor the Lord to open up to the next group of Jews. And I truly believe that it was very important to honor this Nazarite vow. It's in Scripture. Paul did it. So I believe that it was very profound. And in fact, we see a couple of verses that are very uh, that, that really uh, um, revere the Nazarite vows. Could someone look up Numbers chapter 13, verse 18, and read that? Numbers 13, 18. Here's Paul's objective was reverence. He was there to test the playing field. And what better way to do that but to respect the godly vows of the people that he was going to? Numbers 13, 18. Can you read the next one too? This was the verses that I'd written down. It wasn't about the Nazarites. It was about testing the land and seeing what was important. And that's what Paul was doing here. And that's a verse that was in one of the commentaries that showed that what he was doing was always thinking ahead. When he goes into the next town, what's he going to face? What kind of reverences is he supposed to honor in order to, to, to strengthen the hearts of the people? Lisey. Right. Right. Amen. That's a good point. In all things to all men, I think that has been really stretched in many churches and religions today. Becoming all things to all men today means basically enabling sins of the world to come into the church to keep people's attention. You got to entertain them. You have to have gimmicks. You have to have bread and circuses and become like them. That's not what Paul was doing. Paul was becoming all things to all men. I believe it's just like at Pentecost where they became all things to all men when the Holy Spirit gave them power to not only speak in all the different languages but with the same kind of dialect that they had and the idioms and all the kind of different ways they spoke. They spoke extremely perfect to all of the different regions and that's how they heard the gospel. Wasn't that a complete turnaround from the Tower of Babel, wasn't it? I think that's, I, that's very incredible. Well, we look at Amos chapter 2, verse 11. It says, And I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? Lamentations chapter 4, verse 7 says, Her Nazarites were purer than snow, They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire. 
And that was another verse that showed the importance of the Nazarites. This vow was very much reverent. It was revered by the ancient Israel. What, what it meant was this. The Nazarite's head was to be shaved when either his consecration was accidentally polluted, in which case he must again, or when the days of his separation were fulfilled, as we read back in Numbers chapter 6, verse 9. We see that Calvin makes a great distinction among the difference between honoring a vow that is not predicated on religion. This, this actual commentary goes right to Acts chapter 18. He makes a specific commentary for these very verses that we're reading. And that this was made from the Apostle Paul's heart, he says. He talks about it from his heart as opposed to something else, he says. This was a move to honor our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see it had a wonderful effect because he went into the synagogue, into Ephesus, and the people wanted him to stay. My point is that this was done from the heart, as opposed to what Calvin's statement was regarding the papist, which their vows are, he says, ridiculous, because they feign from hence an example of making vows predicated on rituals and works. What this does is puts them in a position that they make themselves deity and have the followers follow them and not Christ. Their followers are never guaranteed assurance that the blood of Christ is sufficient for their salvation. Paul was turning a lot of heads because he was giving people closure. Christ will give you closure. Nothing else will. There are a lot of religions out there. And I like what R.C. Sproul says about religion. It's a way of hedging your bets on not, on not missing heaven on a technicality. You will miss heaven without Jesus Christ. You can conjure up all the things in your head and all these little pathways up the mountain to get to heaven, but without Christ alone, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. I promise you that. I guarantee you that. That's what this whole, whole Bible is about. You try to conjure up some works, you try to go and have some priest try to cleanse you of your sins, if he's not cleansed of his sins, he's going to hell. And I'm telling you right now, without Christ, you have no hope. And that is what Paul is saying. This is a warning. This is not some kind of a, uh, some kind of a phony invitation or some kind of like little, little advertisement. Our life, one thing we all will do here perfectly and very efficiently is we will die. And that day's coming. The question is, what happens next? And this is what Paul's teaching here. He's showing us what's happening next. He's going into Ephesus and he's going to show them. Paul was moved in his heart to make this vow without the effects of pleasing religion, but to please Christ. Calvin says that the papists place a feigned worship of God in their vows, which means they are trying to be like God and they become an idol. He says, quote-unquote, these men do nothing else but entangle in superstition the church of Christ, which was set free long ago. It was set free at creation. It was set free in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So Paul's on his way. He goes to Ephesus, and then on his third missionary journey, his final missionary journey. Where does he go from Ephesus? We just read it. Anybody remember? First, he's at Kentria. He comes from Corinth. He was back at Thessalonica, at Antioch. He comes and he sails down to Ephesus. He gets ready to go from there to a very important place. If you remember, it was Jerusalem. He stops at Ephesus and would come back later. Ephesus. What's so, what is so incredible about Ephesus? 
What was at Ephesus? If you remember, there was, there was much problem at Ephesus. Paul's life was threatened for two major reasons. If you remember anything about his work in the Ephesians, one of the things that he did that really got upset, made people upset, and it got him in trouble. Yes, yes. That was the temple of Diana, the goddess of fertility, the goddess of all living. And there was a real big trade right now. It wasn't there. It was, it was very, there was a lot of money being made. And what happens down the line, Paul goes in and he starts exposing this and saying it's nothing but a lie. And they're saying, they all get together and they have their little meeting. Hey, this guy is, you know, I don't know that they really cared about Diana, but they were making a fortune off of her statue. You know, you go into some of these stores now and you start tearing down some of the t-shirts with rock stars and their statues and all the stuff, you'd be thrown in jail. If you go in and rip a Bible up, that's okay. But if you go and you do all this other stuff, you're in big trouble. That's what Paul did. He took scripture. He went into the Ephesians. He went in there to give them the gospel. And what did they do? They wanted to kill him because he was going after the goddess in the temple of Diana. The first thing was he mocked their God. The second thing was he took away their trade. His intention was to take that away. Because what's the use? If you believe in Jesus Christ, why do you need to make statues of Diana? Well, you go back, what happened in Mars Hill? What did he say back into the Athenians and the Greeks? He made fun of them by himself. You have so many statues and you have so many gods. You even have one that says the unknown God and you don't even know what that's for. You have so many gods. And he said, this is ridiculous. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't have to spend your life carving up marble statues and worshiping them. That's ridiculous. Paul would travel from ship, from Cantria, from the Isthmus of Corinth, and sail down to Ephesus, which refers to, which is referred to as the most important city in Asia Minor. That's big. That's kind of like going up to New York and going right up to New York City. We're going so you know, you pick any state and the biggest city. This is where all, there, this is where all the action was. You know, I think that's funny because Paul. Paul didn't go out into these like real rural regions where you had like nothing but farms and things were spread out and people were easy to get along with. He went right smack into the middle of a fire pretty much everywhere he went. It's like going from here and, and, you know, and us having a service in northwest Baltimore on one of the street corners. <laughs> That's what it was like. You know how every day there's somebody shot down there, sadly. That's what Paul did. The city of Ephesus was perhaps best known for its magnificent temple of Artemis, or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was also an important political, educational, and commercial center, ranking with Alexandria in Egypt and Antioch of Pisidia in southern Asia Minor. It's amazing how this little fledgling church actually was begun by the direction of Paul through Priscilla and Aquila, a handful of people. And look at the great work that was done there. Paul stayed there and pastored them for, for quite a bit. If you add it all together, it was about three years. What was he exposing? What were some of the things that he exposed? Evidently, according to Paul's writings, Ephesus had many false teachers. Do you think that's a problem today? False prophets, people following false prophets, cults? 
We had a family come in here several years ago that sat down and the wife went downstairs and spent all the afternoon crying because she was so happy that she had found Jesus Christ or Christ found her. They were Mormons. And the stuff that the Mormons put that family through still, still rained really heavily on their hearts. And it was an incredible testimony that they had. They were Mormons for years. And what they had learned, and what, 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 what the husband had learned was he said, no, no matter what, I cannot go back to that. I believe in Jesus Christ now. And, he, and it's amazing. He never left Jesus Christ. He, he left the Mormons. Christ found him. And to this day, he still loves Christ. He hasn't gone to some other cult. When people come out of these cults and these false prophets and these false religions and they find, I hate to say they find Christ, because it's not, we don't find him. He finds us. It may look like that because we pray to him and we ask forgiveness for our sins. But if that happens, it means he has found us. And that is a wonderful thing to be in the arms of Jesus Christ. This family didn't leave Christ. They came out of the morning. They didn't go anywhere else to this day. And that's what people do. Well, this is what happened in, in Ephesus. There were false prophets. If you go all the way, if you go all the way to 1 Timothy, Paul brings and shows what was happening back here in Ephesus when he goes there on a third missionary journey. And now you can imagine, now the pen is heating up. And the papers are being by the scribes that, that Paul has there. I don't know how bad Paul was right now, but I know he was going blind. So he probably had help with writing, these, with writing these papers and all. And right now, if you go to Timothy, when he was teaching Timothy, you read what was happening. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Can somebody read that? Very important, and we can see what was going on there. Because this is just a little window of all the hardships there for the Christian church. And then we'll, we'll finish here in a minute. Verse 20, that's a big one. There you go. Paul had convicted them of plaguing the church with fables and endless genealogies. This Hymenius and Alexandra had brought in false teachings. It was actually very demonic and very wicked. And we can see that in the Timothy. Paul goes back to that and shows what the, what, what the uphill battle was that they had. This sounds, this sounds very familiar today where there, there was a lot of dispute in the church. One of the things that came up was genealogies and eschatologies came up. Does that sound familiar? There are people that just rip each, and Christians that just rip each other apart because they don't sit down with a calculator to try to figure out when Christ is coming back. We had a lot of talk about that at Presbytery. And a question came up to me, pre-mill, you all-mill, you post-mill, you upward-mill, lower-mill. And I said, I'll tell you what mill I am. Christ said, I will return as a thief in the night. Now, if you can come up with a formula for that, it certainly hasn't worked for Harold Camping yet. And some of these other guys, we know all these posters that were out there and these people selling their house, October 23rd, 2015. They sold their, well, I think that was, maybe it was October 8th. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It wasn't important enough for me to remember. People sold their houses. They gave up the deeds of their homes. This is the day. 
But why did they think they were the only ones leaving? Well, when they sold their houses, the next day came up and they had nowhere to go. <laughs> you know, isn't that crazy? Well, I'll leave you with this little story and we'll pick up on it next week. We had a man sitting here in this sanctuary last week that had been to the church of Ephesus. Does anybody know the story? Last week, Pastor Olson was here. Does anybody remember Pastor Ed Crawford? Anybody remember him? Wasn't he awesome? He was, he, he was here. We saw him the last time he came to a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Precious brother. But he, Pastor Crawford was very different than most. He loved to go to try to be an archaeologist. He went, to, he went up Mount Ararat twice to try to find Noah's Ark. And he had this premonition or something that there were actual writings of Scripture and artifacts under the floor of the old Ephesus church over there in Turkey. So here he is in the middle of all these Turkish rebels, takes Pastor Olson with him with a metal detector and goes over there and he tries to take a metal detector in the church and find him. And all these Turkish officers came in and swarmed in and grabbed him and threw him in jail. Pastor Olson said he had never been so scared in his life. And so I think that's incredible. We had a man with us. I wish he was with us this week. Pastor Olson was there at that church. And so we're looking at Ephesus. Right now we're looking... Once again, Ephesus considered one of the largest and most impressive cities in the ancient world with great political, religious, and commercial centers in Asia Minor, greatly associated with the ministries of Paul the Apostle and Timothy, who was his faithful understudy. And also, John the Beloved played a real critical role in the spreading of the gospel throughout Ephesus. This church was very strong for a while, but like many Christian churches, suffered a lot of attacks. Great, great attacks. And if you go back, Ephesus actually at one point was taken over by Cyrus of Persia. The Persian Empire had taken Ephesus over many years prior to that. Well, now Paul is preparing for his third missionary journey and now gets ready to depart for Jerusalem. And the question that was so significant about Jerusalem is regarding the Christian church. Why did he go back? Why did he go back to Jerusalem? I believe he went back to Jerusalem to check on the church there. And if you go back to Acts 15, the Jerusalem council was there. And you know, I'm going to leave you with this. Every time I read that, that reminds me of how important Presbytery is for Presbyterians and the church in form of government. Because last Friday, this past Friday, we had Presbytery, and that was like the Jerusalem council. The elders got together, the apostles got together, so here's a good trivia question to leave with. Who was there that was an apostle and an elder? Anybody remember? Oh, you also popped that one out real quick. Who was an apostle and an elder that was there that, that, that did such an awesome job defending, defending the Jews against the, uh, all, against the, pagan, um, the, the, the pagan Pharisees that wanted them all circumcised? It was Peter. Peter, he was an elder and an apostle, and you see how important all of this comes together, and then Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And so I am way out of time. And so let's all, let, let, we're, next week what we're going to do is we're going to pick up with Paul's third missionary journey and see what happens in Jerusalem, and we'll go from there. I'd like to ask uh, Brother uh, Deacon Greg, could you uh, close us this morning? Thank you.